Hi guys, this may be a little more intense because we're talking to an investigation, talking about an investigation with an investigator. The notes say published on March 23rd, 2020, who is John Bishop and why does he think there is a strong possibility that Elisa Gomez was killed that night. Do you agree with his analysis? It's one hour, four minutes, 58 seconds long. And again, the title is Silenced, Episode 10, John Bishop's Investigation, The Death of Elisa Gomez, Gomez with a Z, and is sponsored by Three Men in a Mystery, John Lorden, Gray Hughes, and Mike Mumford, I believe his name is. I can't quite remember that guy's name. But they're all very, very excellent men. And they joined together to do this Three Men in a Mystery. Let's jump right in. The conversation already started on the last... Uh, the last episode that we listened to, episode 11. Their conversation is at the very end of that one. So we'll just pick it up from there. That was only 50 seconds that we heard on the end. To welcome John Bishop to the show. Hello, John. Hello, everyone. Hey, John. Hey. Uh, thank you so hey, much hey, for John. joining us. Yeah, um, so... Of course, the audience wants to know, what's your background? We know that you're looking into this case now, but what type of expertise do you have around stuff like this? Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, I've been a police officer since 1990 in Oklahoma. I was deputy sheriff for two years, and then I've been a police officer for the state of Oklahoma since 1992. Uh, I've done criminal investigations for over 10 years, and during my tenure as a lead detective, I've done numerous homicides and suicides by hanging and strangulation cases. I've worked some terrorism cases in Oklahoma and nationally, and uh, I have a strong investigative background. I've been uh, on the Oklahoma Gang Investigators Association for over 20 years and led that association, too. Wow. So, uh, obviously, got some good experience for taking on something like this, and you've, you've handled cases specifically like this before, right? Yes, sir. Um, how did you get involved with this case in particular? Um, <clears throat> my fiance uh, told me about this case, and it kept coming on her feed and she knew uh, a cousin of Elisa's. Uh, they'd uh, gone to a class in third grade and I've met her in third grade and we also had a mutual friend who was a, uh, from third grade, uh, became one of our one of our good friends and was also a cousin of Elisa's. It was just uh, one of those, it's a small world coincidence that I was born and raised in Minneapolis and uh, through association I knew the Gomez family but I didn't know Elisa. And then uh, Another coincidence was that my fiance and I were also born in June of 1969 in Minneapolis. 
and she wanted to look at this case and she sensed a strong injustice. And uh, I read the city page article and then I looked at your, uh, your uh, video blog that you had on the case. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that intrigued me enough to take a look at it. And as soon as I started looking at the case, I saw a lot of things that just weren't right. Um, and I wanted to know more. So um, my fiance and I carry, we started working uh, on the, on the Gomez case and we talked to Judy Hunt and started gathering information and, the more I learned about the case, the more I can just see that this, what it was on the surface was not what was presented to like the uh, police from Brad and Sharon and uh, the physical evidence just didn't match up with the stories they were putting out. Now, obviously that's one of the big things that we've been struggling with trying to understand this. And, you know, for us looking at records of an investigation is a lot different than, I mean, you're talking about doing mock-ups. I mean, just going to really, different lengths of trying to understand this. And the, the wall we keep hitting is about the physical evidence. You know, we, we keep saying we've, we've, it looks like a suicide for, from a lot of the physical layout. Uh, I've had questions about the lividity. I know you've got some points we're going to talk about with that today. We've got this really bizarre question about the scarf, how that could have been used, why is there a ring of hair tied near the bottom of it? Um, so I know we've got a, a lot to talk about with all that. But before we get into that, I'm curious, with you doing this kind of on your free time and taking this on, are you running into any issues in terms of conflicts with looking into a case in someone else's jurisdiction? Um, not in Oklahoma. I've got a lot of support down there. Um, uh, in Minneapolis, it seems like uh, it's, a, it's a fight to get information. Um, I'm going to go uh, open records request to get information uh, from Minneapolis PD, like the 911 calls. And uh, the information I have has come solely from uh, Judy and what she's got from the Minneapolis Police Department and the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's uh, Office. Okay. So no uh, no big trouble. No one's telling you uh, get away from this or anything? Currently. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, have you tried speaking to uh, Sergeant Valella or Jensen? I haven't. uh Sergeant Villa retired. Uh, I haven't reached out to Sergeant Jensen yet. I want, I wanted to have an understanding of the of the case in its entirety before I reached out to the officers. And uh, I think the first ones I want to talk to are Officer Willis and Officer Dean from the Minneapolis Police Department. They did an outstanding job on their first when they arrived. And Officer Willis makes some statements about this is not a straight up uh, dead on arrival. He hung her, and his initial op observations within the first five minutes of the being on the scene are. You know, that's his training experience. He sees it firsthand, and that's what he makes. So he was one of the first ones I want to talk to. Uh, they both did a great job. And then I want to talk to the detectives. I don't know if they want, they want to talk to me about the case. Um, but the work that was done on the case has given me enough insight to lead me on to exploring other avenues as far as, like, the crime scene photos and the physical evidence that Elisa presented uh, with the lividity and the blanching and the, the body positioning. It's that strong enough, I think, that the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office should make a cause determination of uh, murder instead of suicide or undetermined. So that's your goal, ultimately, with all this? Yes, sir. All right. Well, uh, I know you've been putting a list together of different points. How many points do you currently have on this list? Uh, there's 34 on my list. Uh, Carrie and Judy want me to add a few more. Um, and on these points, I'm trying to go through each one of them and prove or disprove or have supporting evidence that, you know, validates my points to suspect homicide versus suicide. All right. Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and move on to the list and uh, share with us what your findings are. 
Um, just when I started looking at this case, the first thing I had was uh, the cell phone text messages and the police report. And the initial review of it, um, it looked like it could have been a suicide. And when I got the crime scene photos and the uh, body cameras from the officers, a lot of things jumped out. And one of the first things that hit me was uh, Officer Willis stating to his partner, uh, Officer Dean, he, he said, uh, this is not a straight up dead on arrival. Um, he, Brad Alexander, hung her and we need to get homicide out here. And, you know, being a police officer for 30 years, I understand um, what an officer sees and, you know, his first impression of the crime scene and that that shouldn't be easily discounted. They had a very strong suspicion then. So it's one of my, one of my top 10, um, you know, his, his initial impression of the crime scene and, and, the, and Elisa's position was enough to suspicion for him right then and there in the first few minutes to say, this is a homicide. Yeah. I think that's always been really tough for me to understand too. I know we've talked about it on the show before, but why was her body moved? Why was she cut down? It just, the, the logic seems to defy, I mean, you know, you, you go downstairs, you find your friend, they're hanging. Um, you could tell, and, and we've seen photos of the scene and autopsy photos. There was no chance that she was still alive at the time that they found her. None. Um, so this wasn't a rescue effort in terms of cutting her down. And I know some people are talking about different emotional reasons why you might cut someone down in, in that manner. But um, does any of that make sense for you? Do you understand or have any understanding? I mean, you've looked into other cases like this. Have you seen scenes manipulated like that or no i have not seen a scene manipulated like this and i have a theory that the reason why elisa uh, was cut down is that uh, the position that she was in when sharon went uh, downstairs obviously didn't look like a suicide and it had to be it had to be changed or staged to make it look more believable that she committed suicide wow so some of the things i i, I noticed um Looking at Elisa's text messages, she sent her last two messages she sent out. One was to uh, Brad Alexander, and that was at 1.46 a.m. Now, we, lo we know from the Cedar Inn videos that she left at midnight 44 on the 11th. So at 1.46, she says to Brad, we made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. I'm on my way back. So she's not with Brad, and she's saying, I'm on my way back, and we made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. Four minutes later, she sends a text message to Sharon, and it says, we really don't belong together. I need to be on my own. And initially, I thought that that text message was about Brad. Um, through later investigation, I'm, I believe now that that message was about Sharon Vestal, and that was Elisa telling Sharon, we don't belong together, and she was cutting ties with uh, Sharon, too. That puts both of these uh, people, her husband and her roommate, in conflict with Elisa. That would be a very interesting situation because you would wonder what would prompt that, particularly, um, you know, I think something that's obvious from looking at the text exchange is there was a bit of a codependent relation, relationship very quickly happening between Elisa and Brad. Um, you know, there was things that she wanted from him on an emotional level, but they were also basically thrown into running a business together. And through the text messages, you can also see Sharon was also becoming part of that business, too. They had someone that was uh, driving around for them to do uh, checks on dogs. That person didn't want to work with them anymore. And Elisa was kind of preparing Sharon to come into the business as well. Yeah, she, she states that in one text messages. I'm trying to give my business to Sharon. Yeah. And then Sharon and Brad also start becoming codependent on each other. Brad needs Sharon to use Elisa's vehicles to pick him up and do transportation for him, too. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot of ties going on here. And for Elisa to, to take that stance with either of them is already a strong statement. But to your point, it looks like she might have actually been referring to to both of them. Yes, I guess it, you know you could say it, it's speculating to say that they you know cut her down to make it look more like a uh, a suicide. I mean, a, a murder. Well, a suicide rather than a murder. You know, like the position that she was hanging in, I mean, we don't ever get to know exactly how she was hanging because Sharon isn't, you can't really trust anything any of these people are saying, to be honest with you. Well, I, I, I do a little bit more work on uh, Elisa on the crime scene, and I can tell you how uh, the position she was in when she was, uh, when she was dying, when the lividity set in, uh, okay. and uh, her body is uh, in a position that is contrary to the statements that Alexander Ann Best will give to the police. Why don't we go ahead and, and launch into that now? So the it, it's been interesting, guys, because, you know, this whole season I keep talking about the lividity and it just it doesn't look right. The marks on her legs in particular seem to be pointing in, in some other uh, position other than her just hanging from a rafter, which is kind of the simple version of the story that uh, that we hear when we listen to the detective interviews with Sharon in particular. Um, so, yeah, John, give us some insight. What do you think is going on with the body position there? Well, Initially, when I read the report, I thought it could be a suicide. So when you see the crime scene photos, you want to see if the physical evidence is supporting what the witness statements are. And the witness statements that Sarone made um, uh, really alerted me at first. Um, she said, I didn't even look at the front of her. Honestly, I just literally started snipping the back of it. I don't know how long she'd been that way. I didn't look at her face. And when she said, honestly, I just literally, that's a qualifying statement from my training and experience, interview and interrogations and kinesthetic interviews. Uh, that's a qualifying statement. And what usually falls behind that is false. So I wanted to look more at the body position. And she, Elisa's body was into the room by almost three quarters length of her body. So the threshold of the doorway where she was supposedly hanging from was about equal with her calves and her calves, um, I was looking at the back of her calves and I would see lividity and blanching. Now, lividity is the blood pooling at the lowest part of the body. Gravity uh, takes effect and moves blood down there. And blanching happens when uh, an object presses against the body and moves the blood around so that lividity doesn't happen. And in some cases, you can actually see uh, uh, objects that are pressed against the skin and there'll be blanching, a white spot in the lividity that will show the object. And I really became... Uh, interested and focused in on a portion of her left calf. When she was laying face down, there was a whole lot of blanching on her left calf. And her left leg is extended almost straight out, and her right leg has a bend in it, and there's uh, lividity and blanching that shows me that the, the right leg had blanching in it. And when they roll Elise's body over, rigor mortis is still set in, so her legs are pretty much still stiff, and they still stay in that same position, so do her arms. But the left calf had unique marks on it, and what I was able to do was take that left calf and I found a spot on the floor uh, where her right knee was. And when they rolled her over, I could clearly see the floor. Her right knee had modeling from this uneven concrete surface in the bedroom. And I took the, um, I took a picture of that concrete and her left calf and I, I, I posed them so that you could have them fade through each other. And it's an exact match. It's like a jigsaw piece puzzle and it's an exact match. And I sent you guys the pictures of it and you can, if you, if you uh, look at the pictures and line them up next to each other, uh, you can see how 
similar are, but when you put the pictures and make them go through, and I, I did this on a PowerPoint presentation, you can actually see line by line, detail by detail, her left calf was in this spot, which means that it was face, her left calf was down and her leg was up. And then if you look at the left thigh, you can see where her left hand was. There's blanching from her fingers on her left thigh. And then you can also see where her right hand was on her left thigh. So that means that she was sitting up and facing towards the stairs. Well, both Brad and Jerome said that her back was to the stairs, was not facing them, and that when she was cut down by Sharon, she fell straight down. She was already seated on the ground. She couldn't have fallen. There's a lot of things about that particular analysis that um, are, are ringing true for me just in terms of one of the things I was bothered by is where her feet wind up. Because if you are thinking about her being fully suspended and she dropped straight to the ground, as Sharon described, her feet should have been pretty close to directly below where that beam was. And they're not. They've obviously been pulled closer to the stairwell. Um, so when you think about that situation, that she was actually sitting on the ground, kind of facing the stairwell, that means something was propping up her back. Um, and... For them to roll her over or to turn her over, it's one pretty simple move if she's already on the ground there. I mean, you're literally just rolling her in place to get her into the position that she's found in when the first How responders. How was she seated on, on the ground? Was her feet, were her feet straight out? Her left foot was straight out. Her right foot was bent, almost at a 45-degree angle. Um, if you look at the uh, Minneapolis crime scene photo, it's uh, 18782. And it's redacted, but you'll see that her uh, uh -huh. right leg is bent and her left leg is straight, and she's face down over the stool. Well, I, uh, there's the the white area where you were you were mentioning you could do it. You do have an overlay for on her left leg, but how come her her uh, thigh area is the has the the lividity coloring to it? The, um, the, the positive, so I guess. The blood's pulling from the upper body to the lower body. It follows. Uh, that goes to the lowest point. So her legs are going to um, have lividity in it, um, top and bottom, because it's lower than their upper body. Uh, mm -hmm. And she was seated in a, in a sitting position. And what John was touching on was uh, that she was propped up. There's actual signs of blanching and lividity on her back that match the step stool, too. So not only was she seated, but you can see where her buttocks are pressed against the ground, but she also has blanching from the step stool on her lower back which means that she was um, uh, length, she was pulled up onto the step stool or she was on that step stool her lower back was. Um, and this is an exact match to the step stool. And I happened to, a couple of days ago, I picked up a step stool. So I'll be working on that one and sending it to you guys too. But you'll, you'll see that this step stool is the exact same shape as the blanching on her back. Yeah, thankfully in the autopsy photos, they actually include a measurement item there. So John was able to take that measurement and then look at the marks on her back and we're looking at an exact match for, for the step stool. Mm. That's mm. interesting. I wonder if we could do something where we take, I have a program called Poser with characters in it mm -hmm. and we could, you know, place her exactly how you're describing and uh, see if everything lines up. Well, that's, yeah. that's my goal. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you made a, uh, you took a picture and you got the height for the uh, header for the, where the scarf was hung, correct? We, we got a picture of someone that was actually there, and we knew her height, and then we used that to estimate the, yes. uh, the height there. Yeah. 
and that that gives us a good place to recreate. And yeah, I, I want to work with you guys and do a a, a video or a, a recreation uh, electronically. But I'm also going to mock this up full scale. And um, I've got uh, Judy had a copy of the, the scarf that uh, Elisa had that was uh, used to hang her, and she has a blue one. And she let me look at that, and I was able to take measurements from it. Found out that it doesn't stretch, and I've got measurements on it. So now that we can we can recreate the, the uh, length of the scarf and um, work on uh, how that would have been used if the story was true that her back was facing um, the stairwell and she was suspended by the scarf, then it should have been her neckline been hanging straight in the threshold. But she's into the room by almost three quarters of her body length and. Right. Uh, She's face down. That's clearly not how uh, Elisa tells it because her body is showing the blanching and lividity that she was face up and seated. Well, and if, if you also have a body drop from, I mean, I know it's not an incredible height, but the story we're told is Sharon cut her down and she dropped straight down. I mean, shouldn't we see some type of skin slippage or some point where that body actually made contact in a rough way with the ground? And you you would expect to see something like that. And the only, only thing I see from the crime scene photos and the ME's photos is that the, on the crime scene, you can see some modeling of the, uh, the cement floor on her right knee. And that's the only thing that I see. Can you explain what that is for the audience? Um, modeling is where it's kind of like Play-Doh where this, where your, your body is pressed against the skin or you do it. You could do it right now with yourself. You, you press an object against your skin. And after a little bit, you pull that object away and your skin will show that object in your, in your skin. Uh, for a deceased person, there's no blood flow, uh, so that when something presses against the body for a while, it'll, it'll model that surface. Um, and with this modeling, there's no blanching. So you can see lividity through her her right knee, but there is no blanching. So the blood hasn't been uh, moved aside uh, by gravity. Uh, this was definitely something that was post-mortem that pressed against her skin. I think a good example of that, John, was in the Lauren Ag case. Remember that where yeah. her leg was on the boat and you had that design on her knee, I think it was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's nothing to push that design back out, essentially, because the heart has stopped at that point. Yeah, um, and it also raises a, another bit of an interesting question in terms of we have this uh, imprint on her back, essentially, of what looks like the steps. I mean, it's the only item that matches the right size that's in the immediate area there. Uh, but when first responders show up, she is slumped over those steps, the front of her body. However, in the autopsy photos, there's no marks to the front of her body that are showing any type of indentation or anything. So it does seem like um, lividity has set. It does seem like, despite the fact that we know that she was placed over the stool with her, her breasts essentially pressed against the stool, none of that is leaving anything close to the types of marks that we're seeing on her back. Correct. And then you have the question why the step stool is there to begin with. Right. So if Elisa was to have committed suicide, she wouldn't need the step stool. She could literally sit up on her knees. She could have stood up. She could have done anything to tie this noose around her neck, which the, the whole scarf and the noose and the hair is something that's very troubling, too. Why is the hair tied into the noose end of the, of the scarf, the noose knot? So looking at the scarf, you see that the the working end that's wired on the rafter, I think that that knot was tied first, and it was very loose, and there's a lot of slack in it. And then the noose knot that went around Elisa's neck was very tight. There was no, there was no slack at all. It was a very small portion. I think you measured it out or saw it in the report. It was 15 centimeters. And the end of the scarf was actually used in the knot. But also her hair is wrapped in this knot, and a lot of it. 
and it's you can see that the roots are pulled out and that the, there's some hair that was wrapped around her neck um if you want to say this is a suicide and you play at that angle she's in great haste she's making a deliberate action she positions herself on a step stool lays her back on it so that she could get more height to tie the very end of the scarf around her neck to hang herself and doesn't move her hair out of way and i don't know any female that would do that and i don't know anybody that commits suicide to endure more pain and suffering so she's going to tie her own hair pull it out by her own roots to endure more pain, to end her life, to end the suffering, none of it makes sense. And to to negate any of the, the distance that the scarf would have to cover, all she had to simply do was sit up, get on her knees, or stand up. And then if she wanted to hang herself, she could have laid down and, and done the job. So the use of the step stool and the position of the step stool being against her back suggests that she didn't do this to herself. And how tall is the step stool? Um... I don't. I have it out in the car. I can show it to you. It's it's very short. It's maybe maybe 20, 18, 20 inches at the most. Okay, but still, we're talking more than a foot. And yeah. with the height that we were estimating in there, um, if she did stand on top of the steps, her head would probably just about be touching the actual beam, right? Right. And if she was sitting on it, she's she was five four, five five. If she was sitting on it, you you know she, she's still going to be almost you know, five feet tall and, or, you know, four to four to five feet tall. So right. she had plenty of real estate to use the, to tie the scarf for. She wouldn't need it at the very end. And she could have got her hair out of the way and, and made it plenty tight and, and, and accomplished the, the mission. All of it to me suggests that she didn't tie that knot. And she was, that was, um, that the step stool was used to elevate her body, but she didn't do it. Can I bring up something you mentioned a minute ago about the roots of the hair? I mean, is it possible? I'm just throwing out the devil's advocate arguments just to, uh, you know, facilitate a debate here. But uh, let's say the hair was tied into the scarf, and then as she was cut down, the force of that is what pulled out the roots of out of her hair. I guess somehow it could be. Um, yeah. The lack of um, the lack of close-ups and scale on on the scarf that was actually at the crime scene uh, doesn't give you a, a lot to work with, and it's all a hypothesis about how the hair got pulled out. Um, is it probable? It's probable. I don't think it's very likely that uh, that's what did it. And I think that this was forcibly tied in haste. Um, if you think about Elisa uh, and being in, her being in duress, she had a uh, blood alcohol content of 0.13. And she would have taken this um, scarf, placed it around her neck, tie a slip knot, uh, overhand knot, in her own hair at the very end of the scarf under duress while laying on a step stool. And, and John, can you go back for uh, one second? Um, did you say you felt that the step stool itself was used to for someone to stand on the tie the uh, the scarf around in the first place? No, I think the step stool was used to position Elisa's head high enough to uh, uh, bridge the gap because the scarf was already fixed and you couldn't tie it around her while she was on the floor. So you had to elevate her body so that you, enough that you could tie the scarf around her neck. So, um, 
I think I think this is something that Alexander did. So I think that he tried to lift her up, and he he's only five eight and twenty pounds heavier than her, so he doesn't have the physical strength to lift her body up. So he used the step stool to position her head and shoulders up higher, so that he could tie the knot around her neck. So something uh, like that could that indicate he was there by himself doing it without any assistance from anyone? Would you think? That's my theory. Okay. It would also assume that she's incapacitated for some reason. Right. And I'll touch on that in a second, or we can touch on it now. Yeah, let's go for it. Um, so one of the Minneapolis crime scene photos uh, had a, had a close-up of her neck. And when you look at the, when you look at the photo itself, uh, on her, on her uh, center part of her throat on the thorax, Adam's apple area, you'll see that there's some skin sloughage there. Uh, may have been caused by... The hanging and uh, by cutting her down, I don't know. It's really not close enough. There is no scale in this picture, but what you can see is a deep furrow ligature mark around her neck, and there's some hair tied into it. But if you look closely at the right side of her neck, uh, up elevated, uh, there's a ligature mark. It's purple. It's faint, and it looks like a thumb mark, in my opinion. <clears throat> uh, if you look at the lower part of her neck, on the lower left-hand side, you'll see again what looks like a thumb mark. On her neck, and so I created a uh, a picture, and I circled these, and there's a possible ligature mark on the center part of her neck. And the reason why that these marks aren't uh, brighter or darker is that she didn't survive long enough for these marks to develop. And what it looks like to me is that uh, somebody placed their hands around her throat, and it'd be like this, and uh, squeezed the side of her neck. Uh, stopping blood flow through the carotid artery and the jugular. And you only need to do that for about five to ten, about five seconds before a person loses consciousness. And I believe that that is what happened to Elisa, as she lost consciousness. Now, whether she died from this or she died uh, after, I think that she was assaulted and that she had a carotid or vesticular restraint, stopped the blood flow and oxygen to her brain. She lost consciousness and subsequently died. Would it be normal for that type of attack to uh, not be found necessarily in the autopsy? Yeah. about <clears throat> I've done some research on this. About 65% of the uh, strangulation, uh, intimate partner strangulations, show no evidence of strangulation, no evidence of ligature marks, none. And it's often missed. And these are faint. And when you look at them, you might miss it. Um, I think in the medical examiner's report, it said there was no signs of ligature or no signs of ligature marks or crushed, uh, crushed cartilage in her throat. Um, and when you look at the medical examiner's pictures, you don't see these marks. You see them in the crime scene photos, but you do not you do not see them in the uh, medical examiner's photos. So I don't know if the medical examiner had everything that was going on at the crime scene to make their determination. And that's one of the things I want to bring up to them. But you can see it clearly. Um, in the Minneapolis police crime scene photos that they have ligature marks of the thumb and it coincides with uh, a, a manual strangulation. It looked like there's a, a, a slight bruising. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. See the figure eight of hair on the, on the right, her right. And, that, and that's, you know, my point is, that, you know, a person of reasonable intelligence with reasonable suspicion would see the same thing. Then, you know, we clearly are seeing something that's not right with her throat. And it leads to suspicious circumstances, and I think that she was strangled, manually strangled. And, and 
one question, and I, I can't remember if we discussed this or not, but even if she uh, did this to herself, if, if we went that scenario for a second, would it be natural, and I, I don't know if we need to research this, but just as a natural reaction, would, would someone reach up through their own throat trying to loosen up those ropes and perhaps scratch around their throat? We don't see any of that here. We don't um, see that. <clears throat> And I'm curious if that's something that you looked into to see if if people trying to free themselves, even if they've done it to themselves, it seems like it would be a natural reaction to, to, it, to grab at that. It is a very natural reaction. I've seen it in combat on the field as a medic. Uh, the body's going to fight to stay alive. And uh, you'll fight to breathe and you're going to fight to uh, stop your own bleeding. And anything that's trying to kill you, your body's going to have an, uh, a natural involuntary response. Uh, the same strokes breathing you're gonna you're gonna try to breathe even when you know it's you know your dying breath your body's still gonna fight to breathe um if you have any kind of uh, uh if you have any kind of consciousness at all your body's gonna try to uh, uh, alleviate what's causing the strangulation or the obstruction of the airway um i had some people that have committed suicide that have thrashed around and uh, kicked, and you can see that in the crime scene that they've clawed at their throat or craw clawed at the uh, the noose, or they've kicked around, uh, and uh, their feet have been flopping in the crime scene or disturbing things. I don't see any of that. I don't see any disturbed dermis on her on her feet um, that would indicate that she was thrashing around. I don't see it in her hands. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. When you see her hands, it looks like she's positioned with her hands crossed over her waist, and they're on her left thigh, and like she's She's out like she was like it. It just looks staged. The whole thing looks staged. Well, and if there was some involuntary thrashing, we're talking about a pretty tight quarters where she's doing this. I yeah. mean, you know, a, a foot or two to the right. If her arm just swings out, she's she's hitting the beam or she's hitting the wall on one and, side or the other. Yeah. So there's a dumb there's a dumbbell there. There's a humidifier. She's got stuff on the dresser that should have been you know if she was thrashing around may have been knocked over. I don't see any evidence of that. Well, why do you think we don't see that? I think she was already dead. Okay. But how about we, in the initial strangulation that that um, killed her, you don't see her those marks, right? Um, it's quite possible that uh, she lost consciousness uh, within five seconds, and then she succumbed to the, to the uh, manual strangulation. Um, I can't say why there would be an absence of uh, right. uh, those marks unless she was being pinned down, and I have a I have a theory based on Brad's previous uh, criminal record where he, he had assaulted and strangled uh, his wife and was trying to have sexual intercourse. And this leads me to another one of my uh, theories. Um, Brad wanted, um, Brad, Brad needed to seal the deal. He says this a lot in his text messages. And um, one of the things the neighbors overheard was that he wanted an annulment and uh, that's point uh, 16. Uh, neighbors heard uh, Elisa and they identified her voice. That was Elisa with a male. And they were having an argument outside of their house where Brad drops his cell phone. And the neighbor said that, uh, uh, heard her yell, I made a mistake. I want an annulment, which also kind of coincides with the message that she sent to Brad. We've made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. Maybe Brad um, knew that she could easily get an annulment if they didn't have sexual intercourse, and Elisa wasn't going to have voluntary sexual intercourse with him. 
So as he had done in the past, he strangles her, renders her unconscious, or kills her. Um, in his desperation, he stages the crime scene and makes it look like a suicide. Because three days earlier, she had used the suicide ploy to get him back and had text both uh, him and Sharon about uh, the suicide and making notes and all this. And Sharon was party to it helping both Elisa and Brad. But yeah, it's very plausible that uh, he recognized that uh, if he didn't consummate the marriage, that uh, she can get an annulment and he's out. There's also another interesting aspect, and I think it's a good thing that we have a lawyer that's actually helping us with this um, because she's been able to pull some files and review some information. And we've we've seen better detail about what happened to his wife, AJ, uh, a statement that she actually put together that became part of the file. Um, and it does seem like he did some things that were extremely humiliating to her sexually. Uh, I don't want to really go into detail about it, but it might be that this was some type of act like that. Um, some type of way of demeaning Elisa, uh, during the sexual act might've even been something that she was, had experienced before from him. Um, but there is a very strong statement that AJ makes at the end of that. And that's. Basically, if this guy is going to wind up killing someone. Yeah. And uh, I had, before I came up here, there was a senator that pushed a uh, bill in Oklahoma uh, to make strangulation a felony and an enhanceable crime. And uh, lots of states have made it that manual strangulation and intimate partner violence uh, is a premeditated murder. And it can be murder in the first degree. And they quoted a statistic that you were 750% more likely to die by intimate partner uh, domestic violence strangulation than anything else because it just it ramps up and it can go um, really quickly with just a, with just a, a blockage of your arterial your carotid artery or your uh, your juggler you in five seconds you can lose consciousness within minutes you're dead and it's just it's uh, it's the most violent form of domestic violence there is we'll continue with this conversation right after this quick break a lot of us struggle with finding happiness. We'll jump off here and jump back on after their break. 